Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Matthew 11, as we continue working our way through this Gospel. Next week, Lord willing, I believe we'll be in John 1. But uh, today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. Next week, Lord willing, we'll both be in the auditorium and in John 1. But we'll see about that, too. One seems more certain than the other at this point in time. Matthew 11, I want to read from verses 1 through 19. So you follow along in your copy of the scriptures. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Don Carson preached about this passage several years ago, and as part of it, he told about dead batteries. Nope. Something. Anyway, he told a story, uh, an episode from the life of, yeah, they're not dead. No, it's it's, it's your Apple TV. It's an Apple product. It's not Apple. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he told the story about George Whitfield, an episode from George Whitfield's life. Do you know George Whitfield? Uh, George Whitfield was not known for being a handsome man. No one accused him of that. But he was one of the greatest evangelists the church has ever produced. He was born in England, and uh, he spent much of his time evangelizing in the American colonies at the time. In fact, he made the trip back and forth 13 times uh, throughout his life. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people would come and hear him preach. He was the most well-known person in all of the American colonies, only outdone by a man by the name of George Washington. 
Now, Whitfield married late in life, and by all accounts, his uh, wedding, his marriage was an unhappy one. Uh, but God did provide them a son. One time when he was out on a ministry tour, he received news that his son was uh, sick, very sick. So he prayed, Whitfield prayed, and he prayed and prayed fervently, and he felt in his spirit assurance from God that God was going to hear and answer and heal his son. He was very confident of this. In fact, he told people about it. My son is gravely ill, but I have prayed for him, and God is going to heal him. He announced this. This is going to happen. But God didn't, and his son died. And Whitfield was devastated. For the next six months, uh, Whitfield went into this great period of mourning, a period of mourning and grief, not just for his son. He was not just mourning for his son, but he was mourning for his own faith. And where's God? And what has God done? And why did he assure me that he was going to heal my son? And he didn't. What's going on? Whitfield, I imagine those six months felt very much alone. And yet he wasn't alone because I imagine there are some of you in this room who can understand how he felt and what he was going through. How how do you pray after that experience? How do you pray again? Uh, You can imagine some of the things that would run through his mind, the doubt, the despair, This deep sense of discouragement, here I am serving God, I'm an evangelist, and and God did not heal my son. He probably felt very alone, except um, I imagine that John the Baptist had some of those same feelings here in this chapter in Matthew 11. Here he is, John, the forerunner, the one who's to announce Jesus, and he's wondering who Jesus is. Are you really the Messiah who's supposed to come? There are some people who have found this passage troubling. Uh, Some people have found this passage uh, very troubling uh, and have been almost embarrassed by it actually in the text. Why did Matthew put this in here? Why did he? Sometimes the gospel writers are the worst public relations people ever. Why, if you wanted to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, would would you record the doubts of this forerunner? Why would you do that? Actually, I find this passage somewhat comforting. Here is how the Bible responds to the doubt and discouragement of God's people. Uh, Jesus is much more tolerant of John's doubts than he could have been, isn't he? He could have responded significantly different. Actually, he's more tolerant of John than you are with yourself sometimes when you have thoughts like this run through your mind. Jesus is much gentler with John than you are with yourself. Today I want to talk about doubting John. Uh, and uh, So we're going to talk about John's doubts, but I want to give you a, a warning in advance. There's a lot more in this passage than just John's doubts. Uh, there's a lot here. We could spend several hours probably in this passage of Scripture. Jesus talks about John. He talks about uh, what it means to be great. If there's anybody here who aspires to greatness, Jesus wants to have a word with you. Uh, He talks here, Jesus talks about how God's plans for rescuing sinners unfold in the Bible. He talks about unbelief. Why is it that so many people don't believe? Well, Jesus is going to talk about that too uh, before we finish this passage. But uh, let's begin. Uh, I want to cover this under three headings. Three headings that I want to talk about. Here's the first one, John's doubts about Jesus. 
John's doubts about Jesus. We'll start there. These headings are just descriptive of what's in the text, which would get me a failing grade in a homiletics class, but that's okay. Uh, you remember the structure of Matthew, right? I imagine you remember that there's an introduction that talks about Jesus' birth and his baptism and his temptation. And then there's the conclusion that talks about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Uh, usually, sometimes you skip the introduction and conclusions. These are the uber important introductions and conclusions in Matthew. But in between that, Matthew organizes his material around five sermons. And in between those sermons, there are little conversations Um, miracles that Jesus does that reflect back on some of the themes of the sermons. Jesus has just preached the sermon on mission, and he has told the disciples as they go out as his representatives that they're going to have increasing opposition. They're going to experience increasing hostility and persecution. And here's the first scene after that. You wouldn't expect that the first person to push back would be John the Baptist. But that's what happens. John's in prison. Uh, According to uh, some ancient historical sources, he was at the fortress of Micaeus. Uh, Herod owned this fortress. It's east of the Dead Sea. And as best we can tell based on the Gospels, John's been there about a year. Matthew has told us he's been in prison. So Matthew 4.12 makes reference to it. And Matthew 14, when we get there in a little bit, is going to describe the circumstances under which John has been in prison. He's in prison because he spoke truth to power, to put it in, if this were the 60s, that's how we would say it. And, uh, um, uh, so, but he's been there a year. And, um, well, it's an interesting imprisonment. He's allowed visitors. And some of these visitors, his disciples, have come to tell him about Jesus. And as John hears about what Jesus is doing, something seems off. It doesn't seem quite right to him. So he sends his disciples to ask a question. Verse 3 says, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? It's interesting, in verse 2, Matthew refers to him as the Messiah, to Jesus as the Messiah. That's not usually how Matthew refers to him, but Matthew is giving you a clue. I know who Jesus is, and you know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, but John's struggling here. John has some questions. Why is John uncertain? Why is he wondering about Jesus? Probably has something to do with the way that John introduced Jesus. Uh, Flip back with me. We'll come back to Matthew uh, 11 in just a minute. But flip back with you to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And I want to look at verses 11 and 12. Here is John's sermon. One of John's sermons introducing Jesus. And look what he says in Matthew 3, 11. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one. And remember... John had said, are you the one who is to come? Look, here he says, one is coming. After me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, what's the difference between what John was preaching and what Jesus was doing? Where's the fire? Where's the judgment? Where's the winnowing fork that Jesus is going to bring? There's lots of compassion, lots of healing. John certainly doesn't begrudge Jesus that, but where's the fire? You can imagine John's in prison. 
Jesus, if you're the coming one, I, I have a suggestion about where you could bring some judgment. You know, I, I, I know where you could swing that winnowing fork, maybe in my direction, and get me out of here. We should cut John some slack. I know we should cut John some slack because he's asking a question that, that, uh, that a lot of people in the Gospel of Matthew struggle with. In fact, most people. In fact, Jesus' own disciples didn't understand what was going on through his ministry. They have questions. They even don't understand through Jesus' resurrection, uh, crucifixion, and through his resurrection, they're still confused about exactly what Jesus is has come to do. In fact, Matthew 28 records a scene where Jesus is going to ascend into heaven and the, the, the text says the disciples were there and some doubted. They still, even after the resurrection, they didn't quite understand what was going on. So we won't begrudge John here. What they didn't understand, what John didn't understand is that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. He is judge and redeemer. He is the Messiah indeed who's going to come and eradicate the evil in the world, but he's going to start by eradicating evil in the hearts of his people. That's what they didn't understand. We're going to see the disciples' confusion more specifically in Matthew chapter 16 when we get there. Peter puts his foot in his mouth in a great way. But here in, in Matthew 11, it's John. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're not bringing the judgment that we have expected. Uh, Jesus' response here in uh, verse 5 is all about his miracles. And all of these miracles, every single one of them that he mentions, starting verse 5, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, all those are described in Matthew 8 and 9. We've been through all of those miracles. And in fact, you might remember that we were in when we were in Matthew 8 and 9, I referred to this in Matthew 11. The miracles testify to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But what's interesting here is that Jesus phrases this. He puts this in words that John would recognize. This, what Jesus says here sounds very much like a couple of verses in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 35.5 and Isaiah 60. Um, Jesus is is describing himself in terms that John would recognize Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah. What's interesting, in both of those passages, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 60, judgment happens too. Jesus just mentions the blessing and uh, leads out the judgment to come. But he's signaling to John, I know what I'm about, son. I know what I'm about. It's almost as if, John is building a theological house and the main beam is called the Messiah. And he knows how long the Messiah needs to be because he studied the Old Testament and he knows how long. And Jesus isn't quite long enough. He doesn't quite measure up. John doesn't think he's, he's not, doesn't measure up to the Messiah. And then Jesus gets out the measuring tape of the book of Isaiah and lays it down next to himself and says, Oh, uh, John, measure again. You're not, not looking carefully enough. You, you don't quite understand. And then he offers this encouragement to John. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Is that how you expect Jesus to respond to doubt? He doesn't dismiss John. He doesn't belittle John. He doesn't condemn John. 
he doesn't say, well, I guess you can't trust everybody. He takes John's question seriously. He responds to it plainly. And he calls him to persevere. If your son or daughter asked a question about Jesus that reflected this sort of doubt, is this how you would respond? Some of you would be afraid. You should be afraid. My child is about to make shipwreck of their life because of their doubt in the Lord Jesus. And what do I do? Sometimes when, when thoughts like this run through your mind, you just condemn yourself. What's wrong with you? Get it together. Other people don't have this problem. Why do you keep having these questions? Or why are you so afraid? And what's the matter with you? Or you're bitter or angry. Why, why does God leave me like this? Why? Doubts arise from a variety of places. Um, sometimes people have doubts because of in intellectual reasons. This week I listened to a podcast about fabric. Not usually my playlist, but it was interesting. It was talking about the history of how uh, human beings make thread and how they uh, invented weaving technologies and dyeing technologies. It was history. It was a little bit of science. It was very interesting. Did you know that I learned this? In the average pair of jeans, there are six miles of thread in an average pair of jeans. I find that fascinating, but anyway. So while the person, this expert on fabric was talking, uh, she was talking about the history of, of the development of weaving and fabric and she, when did human beings start wearing clothes and why did human beings start wearing clothes and, and how long ago was this technology? And I listened to this and I thought to myself, well, that's not the story that the Bible tells at all. It's quite a bit different. You can't even listen to a podcast about fabric without someone throwing a bomb into the Bible, Right? All around, there's just, everywhere you go, there's people who question the veracity and the historicity and the truthfulness of the account of the world that God gives us in Scripture. So there's intellectual doubts. Some people have moral doubts. Here's going to be the great pressing issue of this generation, it seems to me. Why, why is God so repressive when it comes to our sexuality? Why doesn't he want people to be happy? Doesn't he admire love? Why is he so intolerant? Why is he so repressive? Why are the Bible's sexual ethics so restrictive? God can't be good under these circumstances. Some people have doubts that arise from their suffering. Why won't God relieve pain? Why, why won't he stop this pain in my life? I pray about it and he... He hasn't responded. Doubts come from all kinds of sources. I'm, I'm not trying to valorize doubt or praise doubt. There's, there's some people who have the attitude that, that doubt is a sign of maturity and wisdom, that they're, they're insightful. If, if, if you're certain, it's because you're arrogant. But I, I question everything, and I'm so humble because I question everything. I have no certainty. There's some people who think that, 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 that doubt is admirable for that reason. I'm not saying that. Doubt isn't a place to rest. A doubt is like a cold morning. Everybody's experienced this. You're standing on your front porch or inside your house looking outside and you're wearing your pajamas and your bathrobe and the newspaper is 14 feet out there and you think to yourself, no one's looking. I'll run out real quick and grab it and come back. 
Do you know how many times the dog and I walk early in the morning? And do you know how many Millersville residents we have seen running out to get their paper? It's wonderful because they're horrified. But uh, uh, you run out real quick to grab something. Hopefully nobody will see you. And then you come back inside to where it's warm and safe and, and private. Doubt is like that out there. It's not a place to, be, to find rest. It's a place to, to get out of. And notice how Jesus responds to John. There is a warm, safe place to be. You can see Jesus' re- response. He's, he's ready for you. John's doubts, now John's doubts come from the fact that, that God has not done what he expects God to do. That there's a distinction between what he wants God to do and what God actually uh, does. And actually, John could make a biblical case. He could say, you know, the book of Isaiah says that you're supposed to bring the fire. Where's the fire? You're supposed to, that's what the Bible says. Um, Carson, in that same sermon, says we learned something about doubt here from this passage. As followers of Jesus, what do we do? Over and over and over again, we return to the scriptures because there has to be within our minds and hearts this constant reshaping and reframing of our understanding of the goodness and the mercy and the mystery and the providence of God. We cannot hold God accountable for promises that he has not made. Sometimes you feel like your faith is like a Jenga tower and someone's reached in and pulled out that all-important piece and the tower has collapsed. And now we go back to the scriptures to try to build it again. And that is a painful process. But in the midst of it, this is the Jesus that we encounter. The one who takes the question seriously and answers it plainly and, and pronounces blessing Blessed are the, is the one who perseveres, doesn't stumble on account of me. Stick with it. Now we learn more about this uh, Jesus as we continue. We're going to see secondly here in this passage that Jesus defends John. Jesus defends John. So uh, apparently there were some, we, we pick up here in verse 7, who were listening in. The crowd was listening in to, to John's disciples as they asked this question. Jesus deals gently with the question, and then he defends John. Uh, He doesn't want the people to start uh, uh, dissing John. So he says, who did you go out to see? He asked him three times. Who did you go to see? Who did you go to see? Did you go out to see somebody who's fickle? Like a reed blown out uh, around by the wind, someone fickle? Do you think John is fickle? No. Did you go out to see a, a, a celebrity? An Instagram, a a social media influencer, someone who's got nice clothes and hangs out in all the cool places and has got his silk robe and his Gucci slippers. And and did you go out to see someone fancy? No, no. You went out to see a prophet. It's been 400 years since God sent a prophet. You went out to see a prophet and he's more than a prophet. Jesus is defending John. How can you be more than a prophet? Well, John is more than a prophet in that he is a spokesman for God. He speaks God's messages, but he's more than a prophet because he is also the subject of prophecy in the Hebrew scriptures. He is a prophet and he's the subject of prophecy. 
Now, I want you to see what Jesus is going to do in the next few verses. Um, either here in what Jesus is doing in the next few verses, either he is a lunatic or he's the God-man like he says he is. Uh, Frederick Bruner says, we observe, Matthew is writing his book to talk about Jesus, and he's writing his book to talk about Jesus and to tell us things about Jesus. He's going to quote Jesus talking about John. So listen in to what Matthew wants you to know about Jesus as Jesus talks about John. He quotes, John is more than a prophet because he's the subject of prophecy, and he quotes Malachi um, 3, 1 and verse 10. And look what verse 10 says again. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now that's a quotation of Malachi 3.1, except it's a little bit of a paraphrase. Look what Malachi 3.1 uh, says. Malachi 3.1 from the Hebrew scriptures. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, what's the difference between Malachi 3.1 as Jesus quotes it and Malachi 3.1 as the prophet records it in the Hebrew scriptures? In Malachi 3.1, as the Hebrew prophet quotes God saying, I will send my messenger ahead of me. And Jesus says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. So he changes it from Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, speaking about himself to Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, speaking to someone else. Who's the, who's, this, who's the someone else? Who's the you that Jesus is speaking about? Who, who has the audacity to take the place of God in the scriptures? Jesus is talking actually about him himself, isn't he? Verse 11, look what this says. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Whoa. <laughs> really? Up to this point in time in history, no one has been born who is greater than John the Baptist. And you want to start making a list. You want to say, really? Like Moses? David? Ruth? Abraham? Sarah? There's no, John is the greatest person who has been born since the beginning of time up until the time he was born? Jesus. I mean, come on here. Really? Why? Why does he say this? Why is he so great? He's so great because he introduced Jesus. That's kind of an astounding statement. So um, we have outreach partners that come occasionally to uh, share. Uh, the last one who was here, I think, was uh, Mike Shively. And I introduced Mike Shively. So I stood up and I introduced him. And then he came, Mike and Lauren, they came and spoke. What would have been like if Mike stood up after my introduction and said, Joel Devinney is the greatest human being who has ever been born because he introduced me. We'd probably cross Mike off our list of people we want to support, right? Right? He's wrong on many accounts. John is the greatest person who's ever lived because he introduced me. He's either a lunatic or he's the God man. John and Jesus are not like Chip and Dale, those Disney chipmunks, you know, uh, those obnoxiously polite chipmunks. 
after you, no, after you, no, after you. Oh, thank you, thank you. My, oh, my, oh, yeah. They're so polite to each other, and they I try to outdo one another and honor you. That is not at all what's going on here. Jesus is praising John by saying he's great because he introduced me. Now, we're going to come back to greatness. That's the subject that, that uh, 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 consumes us in the, the second half of verse 11. I want to come back to that. But let's keep going for just a minute and talk about, uh, uh, notice what Jesus says about John and his, his ministry. Verse 12 talks a little bit about the fact that um, why John's ministry, why Jesus' ministry doesn't seem to be advancing the way that some people might think it's supposed to be advancing. Verse 12 is one of the most difficult verses in all of Matthew to translate. Uh, here it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Now, it could be, verse 12 could be translated um, advancing forcefully, moving. So the question is is the kingdom of heaven the one who's doing the violence? Or is the kingdom of heaven receiving the violence? Is it giving the violence or receiving it? You can understand how both might work. I mean, the second half of verse 12 talks about it receiving it. Violent people have been raiding the kingdom of heaven. It's been subjected to violence. That, that may be. Or he could be saying the kingdom of heaven has been itself uh, uh, entering violently. Think about this. Jesus comes to raid the kingdom of darkness. And how does he do it in the miracles? He rescues people from death. He throws demons out. He is pillaging the kingdom of darkness. That, that may be the emphasis there. Either way, there's conflict going on. There, uh, from the days of John, since he began, there's been this conflict, conflict, conflict. Then verse 13, he says that uh, um, um, John's ministry is the culmination of all of the Hebrew scriptures. It's interesting he talks about the law prophesying here. We usually don't think about the law prophesying, but the law is prophesying. And John, it, all of this culminates in John's work. And then Jesus says, verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. And now he's referring here to Malachi 4.5, another prophecy that I want to show you. Malachi 4.5 says, See, God says, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. John is like Elijah. Now this is interesting because in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, they asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? And he said, Oh no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah. I'm not Elijah come back from the dead. But Jesus says, yes, he is Elijah because he comes with the message and style and spirit of Elijah. And because he introduces me, Jesus says, John is great. He's great because he's the culmination of the Hebrew scriptures. He's great because he's provoking this violence. He's great because he introduces me, which brings me back to greatness Look at verse 11 again. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is an astounding passage of scripture. Because he's talking about you. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus. 
Let's line up everybody who's been born before John the Baptist according to greatness. And you know who's at the head of the line? John the Baptist. And then let's line up everybody who's a follower of Jesus that has been a follower of Jesus since uh, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. Let's line them all up and line them in order of greatness. And the last person in that line is still ahead of John the Baptist. (laughs) Reminds me a little bit of what happened at Lowe's the other day. I was there uh, buying stuff and there were a lot of people in line and I, I was at the back at the very end of a line and there was a couple of people ahead of me and a store clerk came up and pointed at me and said, come with me, sir. I'll check you out at this register. And I walked ahead of all those people standing in line. I was following instructions uh, gleefully. And uh, uh, they must have been thinking, well, what happened to him? John the Baptist is the greatest person who has ever lived yet. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. I don't think John had that resentment, but he's talking about you. You being great. Now, what's the standard? The standard of greatness in this passage is introducing Jesus. The measure of greatness is testifying to Jesus. And the reason that the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John is because your testimony can be better than John's. Because John died before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And you know more about Jesus than John did. And you can speak about his great work on the cross. And you can talk about that empty tomb. And that, according to Jesus, makes you great. I don't know how you think about greatness. Some of you aspire to be great. Some of you aspire to be a great basketball player. Some of you aspire to be great bakers. You've been working at it for a long time. Some of you aspire to be great students, a great boss, a a, a great parent. Maybe not great. Maybe you don't aspire to great. I mean, Lincoln was great, and Michael Jordan was great, and Beyonce is great. They're great. But you just want to be admired. You just want to be uh, well-known or appreciated. Here, listen according to, to Jesus. What makes you great is testifying about him. This makes you think that there's going to be a great reordering when we stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. There's a lot of people that this world describes with greatness that that don't rate very high, I don't think, in God's mind. What makes you great? Testifying about the Lord Jesus. You, You can see how this connects to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, right? Because at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go and testify about me all around the world to every nation. Testify about me. That's greatness. This is why we seek to glorify him in everything we do, whether it's on the golf course or in the classroom or as a parent or as a mechanic, an engineer. We seek to glorify God in everything that we do because he is worthy of being glorified and there's greatness there. This is why we're very interested in hearing from our outreach partners about what they're doing. (laughs) It is great. It is an act of greatness to promote the good news about Jesus. We have a lot to say about him. We devote our lives to him, to this, 
to, to testifying about him. There's greatness. Do you want to be great? Here's what Jesus says greatness is. Now we have one more piece here to talk about. This, this uh, John, uh, Jesus at the end here talks about unbelief, and he describes unbelief in this last section. Again, he's talking about, I think, why John's expectations haven't been met yet and why, why uh, apparently so thus far, Jesus and John haven't had such an impact yet. He describes unbelief. He talks, verse 16, about this generation. This ge- he's talking about this group of people he's talking to in, uh, uh, wherever he is in this instance. And think about it here. Why this group of people who heard Jesus speak should have been the most faithful group ever. I mean, they heard John preach, and they saw Jesus do miracles, and they heard him preach. Don't you think that if you knew Jesus personally, you might be a faithful follower of Jesus? Like, like if you touched him, right, and been with him and seen all these things. And, and, and Jesus is, says, well, this generation, that, that no. What, what's wrong? They're the fickle ones, is what he says. Jesus, verse 16, has been watching children play. Uh, Jesus knows about birds and how much they cost, and he's been watching children play too. Some of you understand what this is like. Your father walks into the living room and he says, that's it, no more screen time for today. Get out of the house, go find something else to do. And you say, we don't know what to do. And he says, "Uh, go find something. Go find something to do. So there you are with your brothers and sisters, and somebody comes up with an idea and says, let's play wedding. We'll get, all the, we'll get all our stuffed animals, and they can be the, 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 the crowd, and we'll put Mr. Fluffykins over here, the mother of the bride, and, and, and we'll put uh, Fuzzy over here, and, and let's play, and you be the bride, and you be the groom, and I'll be the preacher, and you can be the bridesmaid, and you be the groomsman, and we'll play wedding, and when we're done, we'll have a reception, and we'll play music and dance, and it'll be great. And some of the kids, uh, some of your siblings, no, that sounds stupid. I don't want to do that. So someone else says, oh, I got a better idea. Let's play funeral. Mr. Fluffykins can be the corpse. And somebody cries over that. Don't kill Mr. Fluffykins. But he can be the corpse. And uh, you can be pallbearers. And I'll be the preacher. And you can be the mourners. And we'll sing sad songs. And uh, kids, the other kids say, that sounds stupid. No. I don't want to do that either. Well, what are we going to do? That's, Jesus says, children, calling out. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. John came preaching a dark message. He came preaching repentance. He came preaching judgment. He came preaching warnings. And, and, and you said of him, he says to this generation, you said, man, someone who's that dark has to be demonic. That can't be from God. Jesus says, the son of man, I came, and I'll say it this way because it will offend you. I came and I liked to party. We don't like that phrase, right? You think of someone who likes to party. You don't want to attribute those things to Jesus. But that that distaste that you have when I say Jesus liked to party, that distaste is the same distaste that the religious leaders had about Jesus because he liked to eat and he liked to drink and you should see the people he hung out with. Oh my goodness, they were a mess. 
And, and people looked at Jesus and said, well, that he can't be from God. I mean, look at him. He can't be from God either. Jesus is referring to the fact here that there is more than one way to be lost. There's more than one way to disbelieve. I was listening this week to uh, Jared Wilson talk about his commute. Jared Wilson commutes. He said, it's either 20 or 30 minutes uh, one way. And he said, have you ever noticed when you commute that everybody on the road is either going too fast or too slow? Some people are going too fast because crazy they're reckless and crazy, and that's, it's unbelievable how fast some people drive. And some people are going so slow, what's wrong with them? That apparently they have nowhere to go. Uh, uh, what is wrong with these? You know you, why you think that? You think that because you are the standard of safe driving. You are the standard of good speeds and why wisdom on the road. And everybody else around you is either going too fast or too slow because you are the standard. John is too negative. He can't be from God because he's so dark. And Jesus, well, there's too much happiness about him. So he, he's not serious enough. He can't be from God either. Neither of them must be right. I am the right one. The truth of the matter is, and wisdom is found here, Jesus wants you to know, you are more broken and more guilty than you think you are, and you need someone like John to tell you the truth about your condition. Plus, plus, there really is life and forgiveness to be had in Jesus, and you need to hear that good news. It's better than you think it is. Make that message known. And be great. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for recording this episode from the life of John the Baptist. This great man, Jesus called him greater than anyone else and yet he still had doubts. It helps us, it encourages us, it comforts us because sometimes... Our expectations of you get shattered too. And it makes us struggle. We're thankful to you for the Lord Jesus and his gentle response to, to John. Make it so in our congregation that we would be blessed because we persevere in the midst of our expectations being shattered. Lord, uh, we also need you to reframe how we think about greatness. We have this wonderful message about the Lord Jesus to speak. Give us courage to do so. Give us creativity in living the lives that you have called us to in a way that glorifies our Savior, your dear Son. Help us. Help us to encourage one another in this. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.